You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Today, though, we're still in the book, uh, we're still in the Emotionally Healthy Church series, uh, Emo Church. We've been in this series called The Emo Church, a series on becoming an emotionally healthy church. And I know we won't become emotionally healthy in eight weeks. I know that. I know that during this eight, at the end of this eight weeks, we're not going to say, hey, we've done it. We did eight weeks in this series. We are all emotionally healthy. But what we've been doing is we've been going through the principles of emotional health to build a foundation of emotional health, to give us a language, a vocabulary, maybe a language and a vocabulary that most of us have never used. What we've said almost every single week is, is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Some of the language that we've given you as a follower of Jesus over the last several weeks is that emotions are not a bad thing. Emotions are not a bad thing, but we must be developed emotionally, just like we've been developed spiritually and developed physically. All these things that we talked about in the very first week, feelings are not a bad thing. We shouldn't devalue what we feel, even when we feel darkness of the soul. But we should start asking the question, why don't I want to feel? Why am I so afraid of emotions? Why am I so afraid of feelings? Why don't I want to grapple with emotions in an honest way? And we also said, we said this a couple weeks ago, we also said emotions are the cry of the soul. They expose what we are doing with the sorrow of life and in turn reveal what our heart is doing with God. Emotions are the cry of the soul. Emotions are deep, deep down, and they reveal our wrestlings with God. So emotions need to be be nurtured, need to be developed, and need to be discipled. And this series has been very important to our maturity and our health as a church. And we hope it's a series that we come back to often. So today, what I'd like to do is I want to talk about the topic of loving well. I want to talk about the topic of loving well. How can we take what we've learned in the series and love well as a result of it? So just like physical health is to live life well, in the same way emotional health is to love well. So all the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, all, all of this, where it ends is the, the, the telos of emotional health, the end goal, the purpose of emotional health is to love well. And that's what I want to talk about today. So if you have a Bible... Please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I want to read this morning from probably one of the most beautiful and poetic. It's poetry. It's verse 6 through 11 is poetry. One of the most beautiful, poetic scriptures in the entire Bible. And I feel bad because I won't be able to do it justice in our time this morning. Hopefully closer to Easter we might be able to. But I want to read it to you today, and I want this to be where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning, talking about Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, I'll read this, and then we'll pray. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Now, Paul, this is, this is uh, rhetoric he's using here. He's basically saying here that in view of the facts, these are all facts, we do have comfort in Christ. We do have all of these, these things in Christ. We have them all, okay? So I'm going to read it a little bit differently. These are all facts. So he's saying, therefore, in the, in the view of the fact that you have encouragement from being united with Christ, and because you have comfort in his love, and because you have a common sharing in the Spirit, 
And because you have tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, he says, by being like-minded. Having the same love in the church, being in one spirit and of one mind. And here's the very, very difficult command. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you the interest to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here comes beautiful theological poetry. Here is the mindset of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I I feel completely inadequate uh, facing this passage ahead of us. Um, I I know that it is our responsibility given to us, the church, to love well, to love each other well, to love you well, to love the world well. And our example, Lord, is Christ Jesus. And that seems so lofty, so difficult, almost crushing under the weight of it. I thank you, Lord, because... Those of us who have believed upon you, those of us who have made Christ our Lord and Savior, we have your mind. The mind that we're given, the renewed mind, is the mind of Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, would you, would you apply that mind to us, that mindset to us? May you push away the, the world's way, the, the, the old way of doing things, the, 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 the world that, that jostles for position and power and, and all of these things, God, and may we be, be put on the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, and the mind of love, and self-sacrifice, so that we can love well. I know this doesn't happen through magic. This doesn't happen through, through just reading this passage. Holy Spirit, you apply it to our, our hearts and our minds, and we live it out. And so, God, would you give us the grace and the courage to do that this morning? And God, I pray that you would anoint me and use my words um, this morning to teach us, God. And use your word. May your word penetrate our hearts. May it forever change us. In Christ's name, amen. I'm convinced that the, the primary job of the church in the world is to love well. The primary job of the church in the world is to love well. The reason that why we are here in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, is to love well. Now, what does it mean to love well? There is a lot of baggage that comes and is associated with loving well. This can be so subjective. How do we love correctly? How do we love well? Well, it's three things. They're not simple by any means, but there's three things. We have to love God well. It means to love God. And then we have to love each other well. And we're going to see this is 
this hinges, everything hinges on this one. We have to love each other well. We have to love each other in the church well. And we have to love those in the world well, those outside the church, those that don't, don't believe in Christ, those that might even be opposed to the, the message of the gospel, those that are especially marginalized, poor, and disadvantaged. We have to love those outside the church well. Now, how, where do we get this from? How do we know this? How do we know this to be true of the church, that this is our obligation, our responsibility, that we are to love well? Well, look at this in John 13, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, a new command I give to you, love one another. It's a command from God. We are to love each other as I have loved you. Now, I really wish, and I've said this before, I really wish Jesus would have had stopped there. I want you guys to love each other. And we're like, oh, Jesus, yes, we're going to love each other. It's going to be awesome. Like, we're going to buy each other flowers and, like, you know, do all this stuff and, like, tell each other, you look great today. And, like, I love that person. Like, great, great outfit today. Oh, man, I'm just loving everyone today. This is awesome. <laughs> Like, I, w- I wish, I wish Jesus would have stopped there and like, hey guys, just love each other. And we're like, yeah, let's just do it. But he says, okay, this is how I want you to love each other. As I have loved you, as I have loved you. And so it's qualified. There's a way that we're to love each other. We're not just to love each other any way we want to. We have to love each other as Christ loved us. So you must love one another. And then he did this. Ah, it gets worse. He says, okay, not only do I need you to love each other and I need you to love each other the way I loved you, but this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. This is how the world will know that you're a Christian, that you're a follower of Jesus by the way that you love one another. Now, I, I, we, we were spending time this morning praying and I'm sure this is, uh, uh, this is you've, you've might have prayed something like this in the past. Um, God, would you please just show, would you just show my coworker that you love them? Would you show my spouse that you love them? Would you show my neighbor, would you show my city, would you show my enemy that you love them, God? Now that might be a prayer that you've prayed in the past, and that's a great prayer to pray. But you know how God answers that prayer? By you. You're the answer to that prayer. I would love it if the answer was, all of a sudden the person walked up the next day and went, oh my gosh, I just feel like God loves me today. You're like, oh, I knew it. This is awesome. I prayed that, that God would just tell you and show you the way, the way, the pri- now, not that God couldn't do that. He, he can do that. But the primary way that God answers that prayer is through you. You're praying, God, would you show them that you love them? And God's like, I would if you would do something. Like if you would actually embody my love because I've given you my spirit, I've given you my power, I've done all that, you can actually show them my love. Then he says this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. I really wish that San Francisco would see the church and its beauty. How is that going to happen? As you love. It's not by us throwing really good Sunday morning services, though that's fun. It's not us throwing big events, prayer nights, whatever. It's not us all wearing a campaign reality t-shirt, like reality church, and we're like, we're all wearing on the same day, like, oh my gosh, look at how this church loves us. No, that's not how you do it. It's us being rubbed in like salt all over the city, loving other people. And then Jesus says, when that happens, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, that you're my followers. He says this in John 15, my command is this, just in case you missed it two chapters ago, let me remind you again. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. First John, 
4.20 says this. And 1 John is all about love. And he says this. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother is a liar. He just calls it out. Okay, you love God. I love God. And I sing like worship songs. I know all the, this new whatever worship album. I know every single lyric. I know every single song. I like, I'm the, I'm the best worshiper in our church. I'm just hands in the air. I'm jumping up and down. All this stuff. But you hate your brother. You hate your person in your community group. You hate the person across the aisle from you. There's someone in the church that doesn't go here anymore because you guys, something happened and you just don't like them. You're a liar. I love God. And John would just say, you're a liar. You don't love God. How can you love God who you don't see? Have you seen God lately? No? Huh. That's funny. You see your brother? You see him? You can't love him? And you're like, well, it's easier to love someone I don't see. I mean, that's just easy. God said, John says right here, no, you're a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. I know this is, I started this, church, uh, this service out really heavy. I'm sorry about that. Um, but this is, to love each other in the church is what everything else hinges upon. All of it hinges upon, go back to that, go to the next slide. Everything hinges on loving God well and then loving others well and then loving the, those outside the church well and then loving each other well is what everything hinges upon. This is what everything, everything's weighted by this one. By loving each other well, we know that we love God well. And by loving each other well, we know we love those in the world well. This is the, the, the test, the acid test of if we're loving God. How are you loving God? First John would say, John would write in First John, then you're loving each other. You cannot love God whom you do not see and hate your brother who you do see. So are you loving each other well in the church? Great, that's awesome. Then you're, that's showing that you're loving God. Now, am I loving the world? Are we loving each other well? How do we show the world that we, that we love God? By loving each other. Jesus says, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another well. Everything hinges on us loving each other. And here's why. We cannot say that we love God and hate our brother. And if we do love one another well, the world will know that we are from God, that we are born of God, that we are born again into a new kingdom, into a new world order, into the order of love. Jesus ties his witness and his authenticity to our ability to love well. I think that's almost too much responsibility to give to the church. I'm like, Jesus, that's just too much responsibility to give to all these people here. Like you're saying that all these people are the, are the way you're going to manifest your love here. and the, You're going to tie your authenticity. You're going to tie our discipleship to loving each other well. That's a, that's a huge gamble. That's a huge risk. And we want to almost through osmosis to go, oh, I just want to love well. I'm, I'm going to love well. I'm going to be well. And that's not how it happens. We're going to learn today. That's not how it happens. Loving well is difficult. Loving well is hard work. And the reason why it's difficult and the reason why it's hard work because it's a crucifixion of self. It's a denial of self. And most of us were doted on as children, like we were the most important things in the world. And then we come into Christianity and Jesus says, you're not the most important thing in the world. You are to deny yourself and love each other well. The importance of loving well is so huge, but we have to do some work to get to what the Bible says is loving well. The best part, the best way to do that is to start by what love is not. Two things that love is not that we've interpreted as being love. 
In our culture, love, there's a lot of baggage on love, so love is a feeling to us. Love is an emotion to us. Love has been reduced to a feeling in our society. It's almost as if we can't love someone we don't like. Like is kind of an emotion. Love is an action. It's like, I would love them, but I don't like them. So I don't want to love them. Jesus says to love even your enemies. It's a command to be, the command is not necessarily be best friends with your enemies. The command is to show the action of love towards your enemies. The service of love, the forgiveness that love requires. We've also been made so self-centered that we only typically love people who are like us. So we are so in love with ourselves, the people that we love listen to all the same music we love. We're like, oh my gosh, you have the best taste of music. Why? Because it's my taste of music, and my taste is the best taste. So I like you, and I love you. You have the best taste in food. You have the best taste in fashion. You have the best taste in whatever it is, and I want to be your friend. I want to love you because you are exactly like me. That's just loving yourself. And so we find it very, very difficult to love because we've attached love to emotion. We've attached love to feeling. We've attached love to the feeling of like. First John says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. There's a time for talking. There's a time for letters and cards. But what true biblical love is, is actions and truth. Love does something. Love moves the other way that we see love, especially in our city, especially in our part of the world, is love as tolerance. For us, love is tolerance. It means if I love you, I'll let you do whatever you want to do. To each his own, live and let die. In a country that's divided by ideology and talk radio and the 24-hour news cycle, we have come to believe that to disagree means to hate someone. So if I disagree with you, I hate you. But if I love you, then if I'm tolerant with you, that means I love you. To disagree does not mean to hate. To disagree means that you disagree with someone. It does not mean you hate them. This, I think that love is tolerance is a bit of a lie from hell. Jesus was able to be morally exacting and deeply compassionate toward the same people at the same time. The same people at the same time. We must be able to love even those we profoundly disagree with. So we can love people and not necessarily tolerate. Tolerance is like, I'll leave you alone to do what you want to do. If God tolerated us, he wouldn't have died on a cross for us. If God tolerated us, I'll tolerate you, whatever. You can just live your life, do whatever you want. Love is actually an action that moves in towards someone, not just tolerates them. It moves in and towards them. You can still disagree with them. You go, hey, I know what? I love you. I disagree with you. I disagree with the way you see the world, but I still love you. And our model, again, is Jesus. Our model is Jesus. A quote commonly attributed to Voltaire says this, though I disapprove of what you say, I will defend to the death the right you have to say it. This is a probably better version of tolerance. It's like I can disagree with you and I can love you at the same time. And I can defend your right to say that. I can defend your right to feel that. Yes, those are validated feelings. I understand what you're going through. I get that. I understand. And I'll enter into your world and I'll get that. But I, I don't have to agree with you, but I can still love you. See, Jesus disapproved of the whole world 
and he laid his life down for the whole world. This is our model. So love is not tolerance in that sense. Then what is biblical love? If it's not tolerance and it's not a feeling, what is it? Love is incarnation. Now, if you don't know what incarnation means, if this is a new word for you, it's a a theological word, here's a basic definition. It's up on the screen. A concrete or actual form of a quality or concept. Love is an incarnation. It's a concrete or actual form of of a quality or concept. In theological terms, what this means is the incarnation was a quality, the essence, the glory, and love of God putting on, adding to his divinity, human flesh, in a way that's shocking, concrete, raw, and physically tangible. See, there's no better way to show humanity the love of God than for God himself to fully enter our world, both physically and emotionally. So, love as incarnation is the biblical model of love. Love as incarnation is what God has shown to us. Now, here's a probably the best verse about the incarnation, John 1, 14, it says this, the word, now the word, before you read ahead, that word, word in Greek is logos, that word is logos in Greek, L-O-G-O-S, in Greek philosophy, logos meant the source, the principle governing the cosmos, Everything came from this logos in Greek philosophy. Logos was, was, was where everything came from. It gave the universe its meaning. It gave the universe its purpose. If you're a nerd, it was like the force in Star Wars. Like everything comes from this. In biblical understanding, logos was the word that framed the universe. God said, and it was. God said, word, and it was. Logos in a, the Logos in a biblical understanding was the word that framed the universe. It was the personal presence of God who cares for his creation. Now, you look at what John is saying here. He's saying the Logos, the, the source principle governing the cosmos, if you're Greek, or the, the word that framed the world, if you're Hebrew, this Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love the way that Eugene Peterson writes it in the message. He says this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That is so epic. The word of God, God became flesh and he moved four houses down. Oh yeah, he lives right over there. He lives in our neighborhood. He took on our flesh and our blood. Love took on skin and bones. Love that framed the world. Logos, that, that was the source principle governing all of existence, became flesh. And we saw the glory with our own eyes. This is incarnation. It's the personal love of God made physical. It's the personal love of God made tangible. It's the metaphysical becoming physical, showing us what God is like, showing us what love is like. How do we know love? Jesus Christ manifested, showed us the love of the Father. Jesus Christ showed us the love of God. 
He was the love of God, the word of God, creator God. God made flesh, took on flesh and bones. Now go back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Now with this sort of understanding of incarnation, what incarnation was, look at what Paul does here. What Paul does is he says, guys, there's a lot of disunity in the church. You guys aren't loving each other the way that you should love each other. I want you to love each other. And then I want to give you an illustration of what love looks like. Love is not abstract. Love is not just emotions. It's not just like getting along with people. is isn't just like accepting everyone for whatever they believe. Love is incarnational. This is what he says. Look at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, we do. Paul's saying you do have encouragement from being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, you have comfort from his love. If any common sharing in the spirit, we have a common sharing in the spirit of God. If any tenderness and compassion, we have tenderness and compassion from God. Then, because of all these things, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Paul's saying, church, I want you guys to have the same mind. Now, he's not saying, hey, I want everyone to agree with the senior pastor. That's not what he's saying. He's not, I want everyone to agree with the ushers. I want everyone to agree with the community group leaders. That's not what he's saying. He wants you to be like-minded, but he'll, in a second, tell you what mind that you're to be like. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, and then here's the exhortation. Here's what we're to do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. We value ourselves so much. We're to look at other people, no matter who they are, in our church, in the Christian community, and go, I'm going to value you more than I value me. Verse 4, look not, looking, not looking to our own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships, verse 5. Now this is, verse 5 is where everything hinges. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. We are to have the same mind. Every one of us who lives into this emotional health as a church, we are to have the same mind. What mind is that? The mindset of Jesus. The mindset of Christ. This is the mind that we're supposed to have. This is the mindset we're supposed to have. And one commentator writes this. This exhortation in verse 5 reaches back to verse 2 to 4 for its definition and ahead to verse 6 to 8 for its illustration. I love this. This is what he's saying. The, the, the writer, the, this commentator is saying, verse 5, this is our, this is what we're called, this exhortation. We are to, we're to have one, we're to in our relationships have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How do we do that? Well, it's defined for us in verses two to four. We'll look at, let's look at that. Here's a definition of what it means to have the same mind as Christ. We are to have the same mind, same love, and be one in spirit. We're to have unity. We are to value others above ourselves, not looking at our own interests, but rather the interest of others. That's the definition. How do we do it? How do we love each other well in this church? How do we love each other so well that when people, and I, I really believe this is happening, that the, the reason why I believe that God has us in this series is that I, I think that there's, a, um, there's something that God wants to do in this city. And I, I think I've said this enough, and you guys know this. I mean, you, I don't think you'd be here if you didn't understand that. God, God desires to do something great in this city. And he wants to bring people into his family. Conversion in the book of Acts is seen as being adopted into a family. Now what kind of family does God want to adopt people into? 
He wants to adopt people into a family that's healthy. He wants to adopt people into a family that's loving. He wants to adopt people into a family that cares for the needs of others more than they care for the needs of themselves. So I believe that as God does this in our church, as God helps us to live emotionally healthy lives, and not just that, but to love each other well, he will begin to bring in people, because I, I just believe that he'll bring in people like, this family will love you well. This family's not there for themselves. This family's not just there for their career or their portfolios or whatever they're doing. They're here not just to take, take, take. They're here to give. They're here to give their lives for others. This is the kind of church This is the kind of church that is truly the body of Christ. So what kind of way, how do we love? And Paul says, incarnation is the model or the illustration for loving well. Incarnation is the model or the illustration for loving well. We are to love well through this incarnational model. Let's look at this poem. Let's learn from the life of Jesus. Some things are so full of awe and so wonderful and so grand that they can only be said through poetry. And this is one of those things. Look at the poetry here. Who, verse 6, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What this is saying is that Jesus was equal with God, had the rights as God, the very nature of God. Jesus was divine. But it says the incarnation, in the incarnation, Jesus didn't use his own, his, his being part of God or being, being very nature God, being God himself, he didn't use that to his own advantage. Meaning, Jesus didn't stop being God when he became human. If that was the case, if Jesus stopped being God when he became human, if that was the case, then we could not have been redeemed by God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sin against them. So uh, God took on flesh. Jesus didn't cease to be God when he became human. Jesus didn't cease to be divine. He didn't cease his equality with God. But what happened during the incarnation? This is important. Jesus didn't regard his equality as something to take advantage of or something to exploit. Jesus didn't cling to his rights as God. In the incarnation, Jesus became one of us without letting go of himself. He became one of us without letting go of himself. Now, this is important. When we incarnate the the love of God, when we love San Francisco well, we have to love it well by becoming one of them but not losing our identity. Do you understand this? We have to love San Francisco well where we love it well without losing ourselves. Sometimes we forget right and wrong. We forget morality. We forget ethics when we start loving well. And everything gets muddy and murky and gray and so gray, you don't know up from down, right from wrong, truth from error. That is not the way we love God or we incarnate God. Not the way that we're called incarnate the love of God. At all. We cannot lose our identity in Christ. We cannot lose who we are in Christ. We not, cannot lose the, the, the moral absolutes that Christ puts us under as his followers. But we still must, we must lose ourselves in, 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 in the way that we, be, we want to know and become like them, but not lose ourselves and we lose our own identities. Jesus didn't lose his identity as God, but he made himself nothing. Look at verse 7. 
Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Some of your translations say he emptied himself. He took on the very nature of a servant, though he was the very, in very nature God. When it says he took on servanthood, or some translations say bond slave, when he takes on servanthood, he took on flesh. It was an expression of himself that was not true of him before. Though it was a desire that God has always to be a servant, that's part of his nature, but that servanthood became incarnate, concrete, flesh and blood. And when he did that, he set aside his prerogatives as God. Now, what does all this mean? Okay, so when Jesus takes on flesh and blood and he moves into the neighborhood, when he moves into our neighborhood, Jesus Christ deserves worship, obedience, adoration, and rightness. He's right and everyone else is wrong. He deserves every knee to bow. He deserves every tongue confess. Everyone rightly understand. He deserves all of that, but he did not press that when he came on earth. When he came on earth, he didn't press his rightness. He didn't press his obedience unless you said you, just, you took up your cross and followed him. He didn't press it out upon the entire world. He came not into the world demanding that from all people. Was he right? Absolutely. Was he perfect? Absolutely. But he entered in our world, he didn't cling to his rights, and he knew who he was. Now, Paul sets this out as our model for loving well. Paul sets this out as our model for loving well. How are we to love well? Like this. God was so concerned by our welfare, our life, our future, our hope, that he entered into our world. This is what it means to love well. That we have to enter into each other's world. That we are so concerned with the welfare of the person to our right and the person to our left that we listen to what's going on in their life. That we hear them out. That we try to live life into their shoes. This is not just us just being like, oh, I just want to be a good person. Though it's true. This is us being like God. This is us being Christians. So when there's a disagreement in our small group, when there's a disagreement in our church, the first thing that we do is we listen. And we're like, I want to see life from your perspective. I could be completely right here. And I can crush you with my rightness. Some of you guys are attorneys. You know how to do this well. I'm going to crush you. I know how to put together an argument that will crush you and make you look so silly. And you know you have that in your power. You have that in your training. You just pull that out and go, I, I can argue, actually, actually I'm so good I can argue pro or con. It doesn't matter. I'll destroy you in either way. <laughs> and you know you can do that. There's some of you that are so versed in scripture and so intellectual that you'll sit in your small group and you'll crush everyone under your theology. Did Jesus do that? Oh my gosh, no way. He meets this, he meets this, this woman at the well and what he does is he enters into conversation with her and he hears her heart and he asks questions. And, he, and what he does, he's asking for, for uh, a bucket to draw water out of the well. But the whole time what he's doing, he's doing the same thing in her heart. He's drawing deep, 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 as Proverbs says, deep in discerning her heart and drawing up the deep things of her own heart. He could crush her with knowledge. Actually, she actually 
went to Jesus and said, tried to get theological on Jesus. And she, she was talking about where people worship. She's like, oh, I heard you Jews worship on this mountain. And we worship on this mountain. And Jesus is like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to argue theology. I want to know why you're out here in the middle of the day drawing water when people normally draw water in the morning. I want to know what you're running from. I want to know who you, who you married to and I'm not married. Oh, that, that's right. The guy you're sleeping with right now, he's not your husband, but you've had several husbands before that. She's like, oh, you're a prophet. He's like, uh-huh, yeah, I am. <laughs> and I could crush you right now with all my knowledge, but I will not. Do you see? That's, that's what love does. This is love incarnate. When we enter in each other's world and we're like, I can crush you right now with my knowledge. I can crush you with my education. I can crush you with my Bible. Whatever, I will not. I will enter into your world. I can crush you right now with filling my side of the conversation. And I can start crying and all this stuff and go, you didn't listen to me, but you're not listening to them. This is what it means to love well. This is what it means to love so well that we, we can actually listen to someone and hear them out. And before we defend our own rights, we, like Jesus Christ, set aside our own prerogatives and go, you know what? I'm going to set aside my own prerogatives and I'm going to take on the form of a servant. This is the only way unity bring, is brought forth in the church. That's it. There is no other way to have unity. You have to set aside your prerogatives and then take on the form of a servant and then listen. And then guess what they get to do? The very same thing. One author said this about listening to one another. He said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. I can tell you this is true in my own life. The parts of my life where I feel the most unloved is when I'm unheard, when someone doesn't hear me. Some of my best friends in the world are, are best friends in the world are the people that do what I do as a profession. And the reason why is they, they can hear me. They can listen to me. And they can listen to me without giving me five things to do. They sit there and go, oh yeah, I've been there. And you're like, you, I'm like, you have? Wait, I'm not alone. You, are, you hear me right now? You are listening to me? I'm like, yeah, that is heart-wrenching. That's crushing. Isn't that the worst? I'm like, yes, it's the worst. Oh my gosh. When I tell this to other people, they're like, oh, you know what? God will do whatever. I'm like, but that doesn't help. God has a way. And he just quotes me these verses. Like, I know those verses. I taught on that verse last week. But when people that know you, they can like, when you're being hurt, it's completely different. You feel like you're loved. This is what it means, guys, in our church. When we start to love well and use incarnation as our model for loving well, we could enter into someone else's world without losing ourselves. We don't lose ourselves when we listen to others' world. We don't lose ourselves and go, you know what? Everything I believe about God is wrong. You know what? You're right. Well, you, would, you, you just lost yourself. We go, I still believe what I believe. I still hold to the truth of Scripture, but I want to enter into your world. Jesus did not cease to be God when he was man. He was God made flesh. And we cannot cease to be followers of Jesus. We don't cease to be who we are. We don't lose our own personalities, but we enter into someone else's world. Another way this, this looks like is God was so concerned about our interests that he didn't cling to his rights as God when he, be, when he, when he came to us. He didn't cling to his rights as God. And this is how we love well. We stop trying to self-protect and to prove our worthiness by defending our side of things. But we only could do this to the, to the degree that we are maturing in one of these, in all the areas of emotional health. As you and I mature in emotional health, 
As we learn to ask from our emotions what's underneath our emotions, as we learn to break the power of the past, as we learn to live with vulnerability and loss, as you and I learn to live under the limits that God has given us, as you and I know and learn how to live by grieving and grieving the loss of the world, only then are we going to learn to truly love well. In the book that we've been using as a study guide, it says, learning to incarnate, incarnate is the sixth principle of emotional health because it assumes progress on the other five. To the extent I am maturing in the first five principles is the degree to which I will be able to love well. As you and I grow in those other areas, we're going to learn how to love each other well. And this is the telos, this is the goal, this is the finish line of health. Church, that you and I would love well. This is what God has given us. This is what God has given us to do. You and I cannot say, God, would you please show your love, pour your love out in San Francisco. And he's like, I'm trying to by salting you in every area of San Francisco. By you. And the way that you love each other is the way I'm doing that. I think it's, it's sometimes really hard to grasp how tangible the love of God is. And I think that's a lie of the enemy, almost keeping a, a cloak over our eyes to see it because there is nothing more clear than God's love made manifest. There's nothing more clear than God's love made incarnate and it's through Jesus Christ. What's ironic about this passage in Philippians chapter 2 is that if you're reading this and it's talking about Jesus didn't, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped at, some of your translations say, something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grabbed onto. You think about who is the one who grasped at trying to be like God? Who is the couple who tried to be God? Adam and Eve. Who grasped at trying to be like God? Who has grasped at trying to be like God ever since Adam and Eve? Every single one of us. We grasped at trying to be like God. We've grasped at trying to be. And the irony is when we do that, we lose it. But here's Jesus. With the power and the position, he was God. But he didn't grasp at it. He gave his life freely for us. Jesus did not grasp at it. Even though it was rightfully his, we see what God is like through Christ. N.T. Wright says, As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. Church, This is the love of God made manifest to us. And then our call, our responsibility. We cannot, I think there's been this overcorrection in a lot of places, maybe even here uh, occasionally, that the love of God is so much everything in the world that we do nothing. God's love is everything, we do nothing. Well, Well, no, that's not really the case. God's love's everything, we receive it, we've done nothing to receive his love, but then we are given the responsibility to show what God's love is like in the world. That is our responsibility. And so when Jesus talks about the reckoning of all things, he uses this illustration of sheep and goats. He says, I want you step to my right, you step to my left, you step to my right, you step to my left. And then when there's a definition of like, well, who gets to the right and who gets to the left? All the people on his right He says, when you saw someone hungry and you fed them, actually he says, when you saw me hungry and you fed me, and when you saw me naked 
And when you saw me do this and you saw me that and you did all these things, you were doing it for me. And they're going, when, when did we see you naked? I don't remember seeing you naked, Jesus. I don't remember seeing you hungry. I don't remember seeing you poor. He's like, when you've done it to the least of these, you did it to me. Like I've given you this response. I've tied myself so tightly with you. It's called a marriage. I've tied myself so completely with you that I've given you the responsibility to love in my name. That is heavy. And we will all stand before God and give an account of that. Every single one of us. And this is not meant to crush you. This is not meant to add morality or add, add um, sort of like this, all these things that we have to do to be saved. That's not what this is at all. What this is is this. We have received the love of God by grace alone. And then now what we do is we have the responsibility to love well. This is our call, church. It's what we're called to do. If we're not loving well, we're not showing what God's like in the world. And the great responsibility and the great privilege that we have given to us by God is in his name, love well. So church, I want to commission you to love the person to your right and to your left well. To love your spouse well. To love your community group well. To love your neighbors well. And then, and then, we will show what God is like in the world. Let's pray. Lord, this is a very, very heavy, heavy word. It's a difficult thing to, for this responsibility to fall on our shoulders, for this responsibility to be upon us. But I thank you of the great indicatives of Scripture, God, that tell us that we have the mind of Christ. We have this mind. All of us do. Given to us by Jesus through the, the Spirit of God. And so, God, I pray that, God, I, I ask that you would not make the love of God abstract in our church. Pray for anyone visiting today, the very first time here, or maybe the very first time at church. I pray through the people that are sitting next to them that might agree to them in the door and might even have lunch with them after church, that they would see what God is like in the world through our love. This is a great responsibility, God. But you give us your spirit. We have the ability to do this because of what you've done for us. You are our motivation. You are our power. I pray we be encouraged this morning that we are given the great responsibility to show what Jesus Christ is like through our love. Empower us today. Pour the love of the Father out on our hearts and cause us to walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen.